0: Slide you had up there about uh, research universities supporting voting following by the wish issues. I think you're exactly right on there. As I look at our, but I want to ask about what you think about uh, programs like the Arizona Assurance, which sort of fills in that gap, at least for state residents. Uh,
1: now it's not fully funded yet, but
2: that's the first thing about it. And the remarkable thing. So you're from Michigan earlier this year not this academic year i was driving to a, to a meeting at western michigan and i was listening to npr and they were reporting on the fact that I, the the program in mission is called michigan's promise the student aid program they had eliminated michigan's promise couldn't afford it <laughs> it's like that sort of captures <laughs> where we're at well, we're eliminating michigan's promise I think um, when a place like Arizona does that I have much more regard for the initiative than when a place like Harvard does it or Princeton. You know, (laughs) there, okay, so the ten people you have, here I think that's a serious effort and the challenge is to fund it. Because I think what we're doing, you know, it's not that the people that I know who work in enrollment management, I have two former students who work in a wonderful center at the University of Southern California who at North Carolina, one of them did a very good job of balancing um, the diversity of the student population, the quality of the student population. Um, So this isn't to castigate the people who are in enrollment management at all. There's a lot of people who are sort of deeply committed to trying to balance those outcomes. But on balance, what happens is you end up going for the wealth of your kids you end up tuition discounting that kid in Marin County who actually doesn't score quite as well as that kid in in Bisbee. But the kid in Bisbee is expensive. <laughs> it's just a crazy calculus. So I think those kinds of programs are absolutely important. And, and I think it's precisely because of that that a college of education, the kind of outreach programs that we as a college and as a center have been involved with, merit public support. That's really, I think, part of our future. It's not hard to understand why the public isn't all that wildly supportive of us if we keep sort of cutting the programs that are actually targeting those students. So I I think that's that's absolutely something that we need to do. And as I said, I think I'm, I have a lot more admiration for it when it's in a, We're basically an open-access public university. I mean, you know this better than just about anybody in the room coming from Michigan. This is not and never will be Michigan. And my response to that is, and we shouldn't try to be. What we should be trying to do is expanding those kinds of programs and expanding our engagement, there's a, a university in, in Baltimore County, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, that really sees itself as invested in its local public schools. It does a lot of science stuff, it's very successful as a, as a university doing science work, and at the same time, it's really invested in its local schools. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the president, Freeman Hrabowski III, who is a pretty dynamic Guy. And they have, a, they have a program that in some way, so here's another example of what we should be building up. They have a, an endowed program, the Meyerhoff program, which is fabulously successful, not only in getting African-American students, mostly African-American students, they've diversified it a little bit now, but mostly African-American students to graduate, not only graduate in science, but then to pursue graduate and professional education in STEM fields. Incredibly successful. Well, we have a New START program. It really seems to me like, and I've kind of been pushing this for some time, it seems to me like there's an opportunity for us to do the equivalent of a Meyerhoff program. That we should be investing in Rudy. (laughs) Uh, We should be investing in the kinds of programs that are going to reach those kids and pull our whole community up because we're all going to benefit from that. But I think we don't kind of make those equations enough. Hmm? Maria?
3: Gary, there is a new movement in Arizona of uh, setting up the equilibrium of the Cal State system, because universities like ours are very expensive because we're researching, et cetera. And so it sounds like it's a... They're trying to make it sound like a parallel and equal proposition. How do you feel about
2: that? So this was floated when Pete Likens was president. But it's
1: floated again. Well, the
2: the reason I say that is because when it was floated by Pete Likens, I wrote a, not just by Pete, but by the head of the regents at the time. I've forgotten the guy's name. I wrote an op-ed piece that basically articulated, if it's on the cheap, then I get about as excited as I do if you tell me we're going to open a uh, low-cost, poorly supported trauma center in South Tucson. (laughs) So I think the problem with, let's just take the the parallel. In California, the California State Universities have been the stepchild of that master plan for 50 years. In the next two years, we do a lot of work because they're one of our affiliates, but also some of my, two of my best higher education colleagues are presidents in that system. King Alexander's at Long Beach State and, and, uh, oh, God, at Dominguez Hills. Millie Garcia's at Dominguez Hills. In the next two years, the California State University system is turning away 40,000 qualified applicants. That cascade goes down into the community colleges, which I'm told in California will be turning away in the next year an estimated 100,000 qualified applicants. So we need to be kind of like McDonald's, you know, 10 billion served. We need to start putting signs up, you know, half a million not served. (laughs) The, The problem, so the problem with the Cal State system is, A, it's been the stepchild and dramatically underfunded, and B, the underfunding is up to such a level now that it's not just the University of California that raised their tuition this year, tuition and fees this year, 32 percent. So, you know, it's great what uh, the administration, the federal administration is doing with Pell Grants, but (laughs) they didn't get raised 32 percent. The Cal States are also raising, dramatically, their tuition. So, I think the California example suggests it's not the peers it's not having a tiered system, it's having public support for whatever public system that we have. And part of the reason a tiered system, in my view, makes more sense in California than necessarily it does here is, the University of California really is, particularly the flagship campuses of that system, that's like the top 5-6% to of most of the, of the state population. That's just not true of the U of A issue. We are are not now, nor will we ever be uh, accepting only the top 5 to 6 percent of the students. So the game here, I think, is um, is not necessarily going to be solved by setting up what fundamentally is going to be a cheaper, not just cheaper cost, but cheaper investment for the state. I think in both places the challenge is to fund public higher education. And it, it's a pretty depressing thing to, to deal with, so, so one of my students is doing an analysis of enrollment management in the Cal State system. It's really depressing. They are having to turn away students who they know are qualified, and they simply don't have the capacity to accommodate them, not only in the faculty, but in the, in the professionals in the advisors and the counselors and the outreach people and the, the bridge programs. So on the Student Affairs side, they also don't have the capacity. So what we are at is a place where, this is ironic, nationally we have an administration that's trying to stimulate demand. Talking about a race to the top, 2020, we're going to have these large numbers. Well, I sit on a Secretariat of Institutional Associations, and uh, one of them, the one that convenes it, is the American Council on Education, and Molly Corbett Broad is the President of that. She used to be the Executive Director of our regions, Molly sat in one of these meetings with the administration and said, we're all on board, but you know what? We don't see how we can get there from here. We have to build our capacity, not just physical capacity, because we've invested a lot more in facilities over the past 10 years than we have in faculty. We've got kind of this edifice complex going, like to build edifices. So what she's saying, what a lot of people nationally are saying is, We need to expand our capacity, and this is taking place at the same time that the state is hacking, hacking, hacking. So I think that's the challenge. It's not the structure of the system primarily. It's fundamentally, will the state invest in educating lower-income kids?
0: I preface the question by saying I'm a former state legislator, president of AUP here in the state, and a professor here. Looking at the state side, It's not too clear, and I have a question question because of academic freedom, from the state legislative point of view it's not clear what the purpose of the university is. And it's not enough to say it correlates with You know, the the word correlation doesn't even compute with half of my colleagues in the legislature, they don't know what that means. But, uh, so you tell them that, you know, education correlates with less crime and things like that. They have immediate problems. And the reason for the crisis in the budget is the social pathologies, the uh, unwanted pregnancies, poverty, drugs, crime, all these. And your concept of reallocating resources, I'd like to hear you talk about the fact that those people that work on those issues that relate directly to reducing the cost for the state are either not recognized, being cut, and certainly not being brought forward to the attention of the legislature.
2: So I think two 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 examples. One is a uh, some years ago we had a we had some Kellogg money to do partnerships with community groups, and I was this is this was like the early maybe the mid-90s. And, um, and the idea was to partner academic units in the university with community groups that were addressing a variety of problems of the sort that you're describing. And it was a, it was a small amount of money total. Every year they allocated maybe $250,000, $300,000. So I sat on the review committees, which included community members. And each one of those community members in these panels would say, this is the best thing the university has ever done. The program, once the funding ran out, the external funding ran out, was cut. We we're not willing to invest even on the margins. $250,000 is half the cost of starting up a lab scientist in, in, uh, in the university at the junior level. Um, so that's one example. But we have the potential with the expertise we have, and a variety of community groups in healthcare and in, um, in the justice system and the like, to form these kinds of partnerships and to conceive of ourselves in that way. Uh, and we don't, we have not exercised the will to allocate monies accordingly. So I, I think we could do that. We could pay, let's say for two or three years as we're in the midst of the worst economic crisis in 80 years in American higher education, to sort of put a hold on um, escalating our expectations for promotion and tenure and rankings and the like and said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna re-engage the community on a really fundamental level. The second example is within the College of Ed, we've had this conversation, and, and um, I think Ron's been at the center of this, Luis mole has been at the center of it, Jeff Milam's work with the med school is connected to it. Health and education are interrelated. And you could really see, if you were creative, ways to, if you want to really think about interesting combinations, that aren't just something you can show to the external world and say, look, we've cut X number of programs and merged X number of programs, but if they were really driven by a sense of what you're talking about, I think, again, you could see how the combination of education, health, and then a variety of student services as well, not just on the academic side of the house, but a variety of the services that we provide to students in all sorts of ways on the student services side of the house you could see configurations of activities that we ought to be providing seed money for. But we don't, we don't move to those opportunities. Instead, we're sort of more attracted by a new campus, which... <laughs> uh, we, we <laughs> that could be a whole session in the South, and Nancy would, like, would be a good person to head the discussion. <laughs> Chad?
3: Talking about is is organizations like AAUMT kind of organizing universities, serving as kind of a network broker in in, in institutions like teachers' unions and um, institutional actors through AAUMT, which has an influence on the legislative process. So, when you think about when when you make the argument about public education, you talk a lot about the public, so the external community. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of collective action or network brokers that just the public has. It's always the public just talking to the legislature saying we need this, we need that, but when you think about policy formation, if there's not uh, an agent in between mediating that relationship, then there's really not a lot of influence or the governance not going to that entity to say, well, mm-hmm. how can we help? there's no information exchange. So what what kind of organizations can be created just for, you know, playing public to say, how
2: can you really implement something public? I, I think a lot of that is our own. So partly you have to use the organizations that are available to you and the networks that are available to you. And part of what I was referring to with the closing of the cultural centers was, um, so I've been here 24 years years. It didn't take me 24 days to understand that the Latino and Native communities in this state are significant for a whole variety of reasons, culturally, politically, economically, socially, Um, but we for some reason underestimate and under invest in partnering with any of those communities, any and all of those communities, in affecting the sort of network that you're talking about. I mean, for me I have the feeling that we too often have had administrations that saw such communities as groups that needed to be dealt with, appeased, uh, talked with, Uh, responded to, but not as communities that were resources. And so I'm looking at David and of course thinking of Luis and funds of knowledge. You know, there's a lot of knowledge and power and organization in the communities that we have not been systematically sufficiently serving in this state. And so that's one set of groups. I think you, you could identify a whole range of others as well, and some of these groups are spontaneous. Some of them are like in many of these states that I'm talking about. These are, I went to one uh, presentation, I gave one presentation at the Cal State University of San Marcos, which is a Cal State that, it's about 15 or 20 miles uh, east of San Diego. It's really gone from being quite a diverse community to being largely suburban Anglo institution. And um, the students there are so upset about the cuts that are coming to the CSU that they just, there's student government, that's one thing, but then there's these spontaneous, save the CSU groups, which are, you know, writing referendums and making public statements and organizing protests, and so I think it's kind of a combination of tapping into the groups that exist, and obviously those groups include business groups. Um, community groups, because there's, you know, we actually have a lot of community organizations in the state. We have a lot of groups that have formed around a range of issues, and I think we have insufficiently tapped into them as a resource. And I think now is the time for us to not just say, okay, let's use you, but to think about how programmatically could we do things? How could we be moving money to programs and activities that would signal um, to these communities that this is actually where we see our future. Um, so I guess that's my response, Chad, that, that a lot of these groups already exist that we could tapping. into. Time for one last you call
1: it, mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I just want to piggyback a little
2: bit on what Chad was saying on the issue of his
1: second here. I mean, if in terms of the signal to a community, I mean, just like we're no Berkeley, this second tier is no Cal State. I mean, basically, you know, I looked at this plan that they have in great detail, and it's essentially this idea of mall degrees. My class, we call it mall degrees. You know, you're going to rent out a mall state and offer degrees from the universities, you know, across the state. And, and part of the problem, I think, with that kind of plan and investment and AZ Assurance, You know plan as well is that here in at the university you know ac assurance is quickly becoming a revolving door Mm -hmm. you know and the majority of these students that are coming from these communities you talk about are coming here and they're on academic probation or quickly 50 percent of them are are going to be either gone or on academic probation and there's really no plan to invest in the retention of these students once they get once they get here instead the plan is to try to generate more cheap revenue right by offering mall degrees in their in their communities, right? To rent out space, that's not even going to invest in, in building um anything permanent. So I mean I guess in terms of that I think if if the regions, if the state was wanted to invest in in this, you know, they would be not cutting outreach and not cutting um the places where these students can get support once they're in the university. Um, so, I mean, I was just wondering in terms of that vision that the university and the regions have, you know, what your, you know, response to that is. Well,
2: that's why I invoked the Meyerhoff program. Because, you know, at the national level now, people are no longer talking about access. It's really success. You can, if, you're, if you're just letting people in and then they re- revolve out the door, you're not doing your job. And obviously with the example of the Meyerhoff program, my feeling is, we shouldn't only be focusing on success in terms of getting a baccalaureate degree. We should be focusing on the whole cycle, tracking them into graduate and professional school. You, you go and talk to the people. Uh, Lamont Tolliver is the director of the Meyerhoff program. He can he can just rattle off, you know, so and so's at Princeton, so and so's at Chicago, so and so's at Western. Yeah, we just sent a student here. We got three people there. That is that's an investment. Now, in their case, it's an investment that comes from uh, a donor. It's not inconceivable that an investment we could make as an institution. And I think that's precisely, at some point, communities understand. Um, if you're opening up mall sites for them, the funny thing is, people understand the difference between going to a university that's in a mall and going to a university that's like ours, that has a mall, but that... <laughs> <laughs> but that isn't rental space in a mall. No, they actually understand that. So that in itself is just the wrong message to be sending to people. Uh, before I left, Michael Crow wrote, a, um, wrote an op-ed piece for the Arizona Republic where he basically said, a hundred years ago, we made huge public investments to expand our possibilities as a society. We made huge public investments in roads, in railroads, in public health, and in public education. And if we want to touch the next generation and open up their opportunities in the way that our opportunities were opened up by these folks 100 years ago, we have to do the same thing. And all of this sort of on the cheap—maybe we can offer them a mall degree. That's just that's constipated thinking. It's just really bad thinking. It's not what built this country. And that's what bothers me most about much of the discourse that I hear about higher education. There's a lot of really smart people in these institutions. In our work, we're embedded with this skepticism and we try and examine data and challenge conventions that we think don't make any sense. We question presuppositions that we think are ill-founded. But when we get in these discussions about where we're headed as a university, somehow we lose a lot of that. And some of it is you just get beaten down. So you're here 24 years, you've been through at least five iterations of strategic planning. Um, But that's also why, so I'll bring it full circle, why when um, I started out I said I congratulate Jenny for having the energy amidst all this crap to try and change that and to try and articulate a different set of possibilities or at least raise the conversation a bit from we have to do this. You don't have to do this. You can actually do something else. This state could decide to do something other than mall degrees for kids of color because that's all it is. When it comes down to it, that's what it is in these nationally, not just in the Southwest, are we willing to invest in the education of our growing populations which are of color, immigrant, and low income? Which means relative to the people who are in this room, they are, uh, or relative to the people who are in universities, they are in one way or another, others. Are we willing to invest in our future? And I don't say that uh, so I'm kind of seeing or hearing Ron out of the corner of my eye. We need to continue to hustle for grants. We need to continue to look for ways to generate revenue. But if you give up that that's what we're about, if you give up that we're a space where people can raise questions that you can't raise in other places, then you've given up the reason for being in this place. Go be in a company. If I can't raise a voice in critique in a university. If I can't I was recently in a university where a philosophy professor in a nursing school was saying, we're so focused on resources here, that my work, which is about the philosophy of care and rethinking how we provide care in healthcare settings, is seen as unproductive. <laughs> when at the heart of our healthcare system is a question of how do we embed greater degrees of care for our patients and our population. But her work is unproductive because it doesn't generate grant money. There aren't a whole lot of people who are giving grant money for philosophers in nursing schools to think about cultures of care. That's what we give up when we give up the idea that we have public missions that we ought to be attending to. When we grade everybody by what's the latest grant you brought in, And we don't ask what the grant was, we just ask how much it was. That's what we give up. We give up a place that critiques the system and society that we're a part of. Because that's not productive. Who's going to fund critique? I've survived for 25 years, but I don't get the kind of money that I would get if I was doing something else. So I think that's at the heart of the challenge that we face, to continue to to hustle, but to hustle in ways that are true to what we're about as an institution. Thanks for your attention.